Oh, so friends, we're continuing this week and finishing a two-week series centering in on the places where our faith takes root, the foundational elements of our faith. So last Sunday, we spent some time in a psalm, and we explored our place in the world and God's love for us. This week, the theme of God's love continues, as it always does, and we're going, as we go, from one testament to the next, from the lyrical poetry of a psalm to the theological density of the book of Hebrews. See, we know that God loves us, that uh, who we are and what we do matters. But today we ask, what about our failings? When we, uh, what do we do when we fail to live up to the standards we were created for? This week we're talking about sin, but also redemption, the two-part vehicle of grace that undergirds the entirety of our faith. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Equip us to hear your voice that we might ground our faith in the truth you speak. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Is our faith founded in fear? When traveling on the highway, I make a habit of watching the billboards as they pass by. Sometimes they're the most interesting parts of the scenery, and they tend to be funny, if not informative, as they point out a few local curiosities maybe mixed along with every fast food franchise hugging the interstate pavement between here and wherever it is that you're going. They're an enjoyable, if passing, interest that I read and immediately forget. All that is, except for one. It was a while ago, and not in Michigan, though it was a sort of billboard that you could find just about anywhere. It's this billboard that at the top it said, everyone will live eternally. And then underneath that it said, where would you like to spend it? And then, just to make sure it was spelling everything out just as clearly as it could, it gave two options, heaven and hell. And they provided pictures, too. In case it didn't seem like a simple choice, heaven was this picture of a clear blue sky with big fluffy clouds. Hell was simply on fire. It didn't seem like a very difficult choice the way they were laying it out. Friends, I have to tell you, I'm not a big fan of billboards like this. The challenge with billboards is that they're seen for just a moment by drivers on a busy road, and so they have to be intentionally designed to show the most important information as briefly as possible. But I wonder, is the most important facet of our faith, the most fundamental element of what we believe, really a fear-induced decision between eternal splendor and eternal torment? Is our faith founded in fear like that? At times, churches have adopted this understanding. There is a long, albeit questionable, tradition of preachers who have used fear to coerce confessions, delivering fiery sermons intended to convict congregations of their sinfulness and terrible trajectory. Fear is not an unfamiliar fellow in places of faith. But I don't know that I need any sermons like that to convince me. I know my sins. I know them well and how scary they can be because it's hard to imagine how my sinfulness and God's holiness might coexist even as acknowledging my sin convinces me how deeply I need God. What is there but fear when the options before us are to be without God or to be a sinner in God's presence? There is some 
Jewish understanding around the a Jewish tradition, excuse me, around the understanding that sin and holiness can't exist, coexist. It can be found in the physical construction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was built around the innermost sanctuary called the Holy of Holies, the place where God was somehow more present than anywhere else in the world. The closer you got to this place of God's presence, the more ritually pure you had to be. And only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies, that most innermost part where God was. And the high priest was only allowed into the Holy of Holies on a single day of the year, on Yom Kippur. There's a story that is sometimes told that even the high priest went fearfully into the Holy of Holies on that day with bells sewn into the hem of his robe and a rope looped around his ankle while the other priest listened anxiously from outside the room. When the bells would jangle and jingle, it meant that the priest was moving around and those waiting outside would know that everything was okay. But if the listeners ever heard silence, it meant that the priest had gone into the presence of God, somehow tainted by sin, and had been struck dead. The priests waiting outside would then pull his body out with the rope, not daring to enter themselves, cowering outside for fear of punishment from the God they worshipped. It's quite the story. The only problem with it is that it's not true. It's not true even in the slightest. The high priests didn't wear bells or a rope, and the people didn't live in this fear because they had a system for dealing with sin. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, it was on Yom Kippur, which was a day of atonement, a day when the priests would offer sacrifices atoning for the sins of the people, making good with God despite their failings, and the high priest would take the blood of those sacrifices and splatter them in the Holy of Holies. Every year on that day, and in countless other days, and countless other prescribed sacrifices throughout the rest of the year, the priests faithfully fulfilled their duty, offering sacrifices for all those in need of atonement. Day in and day out, they would offer sacrifices, for there was always more sin, but they had this method for managing it. There was no reason to fear. But we have a natural propensity for fear, I think, it's not hard to imagine that the people in a sacrificial system might have worried about whether they had sacrificed enough or might fret about how they could have sinned after their last sacrifice in much the same way that we sometimes find ourselves fearfully pushed to our knees for a prayer of frantic, desperate repentance every time we're afraid we've slipped up. It's the same fear that leads us to wonder whether we've been saved recently enough, fully enough, honestly enough, and maybe just another recitation of the sinner's prayer would be good just to make sure. This never stopping, always rushing, always moving, always striving to make sure that our repentance and our forgiveness balances out the sinfulness growing on the other side of the scale. Isn't that what they say? There's no rest for the wicked. Hebrews says in verse 11, And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. Because sacrifices atone for the past, but cannot touch the future. So it leaves the priests forever standing at their post, forever needed for as long as sin pervades. But there was one priest who offered his sacrifice and then sat down, Hebrews said. That priest is Jesus Christ. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, the author writes in verse 14. 
In his death and resurrection and blood shed and love poured out, Jesus has given forgiveness forever and always with such finality that nothing else need ever be done. And so he sits down, the right hand of the Almighty. He was finished, and that was the end. The end of sacrifices, the end of atonement, the end of trying to keep up. And instead, we have forgiveness and rest and confidence. This is what the Scripture says there later. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence that we can enter the Holy of Holies by means of Jesus' blood. We can stand in the very presence of God with confidence rather than fear because we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed by the blood of the new high priest, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And this shift from sinner to forgiven, from fearful to confident, is no small leap. It's one that all our worrying and hurrying couldn't meet couldn't make one that can't be bridged by offered sacrifices or tears of repentance. It is a gift from God and always has been. I've heard it said that faith is the open hand of a beggar reaching out to receive the gift of a king. It's a vivid image, though it has its limitations, uh, particularly as it encourages a transactional view of salvation and fails to incorporate the relational aspect of forgiveness or even the love which drives God's work of redemption. But I like it just the same because it reminds me of the first poem that I ever loved, which is about a king and a beggar. My dad used to read it to my brothers and I, my brothers and me, when we were young, out of an A.A. A. Milne anthology. The author most well-known for writing Winnie the Pooh but also a whimsical poet in his own right. This poem was called King Hillary and the Beggar Man, and it began like this. Good King Hillary said to his chancellor, Lord High Willoughby, Lord High Chancellor, run to the wicked gate, quickly, quickly, run to the wicked gate and see who is knocking. And so it sets the scene in this way. The king has heard a knocking upon the door and instructed his Lord High Chancellor to rush and open it. But as the listener to the poem quickly learns, the proud Lord Willoughby refuses unilaterally with a laugh to go to the door. And he talks about just how beneath his station such a task would be. And so the poem goes on and the king muses imaginatively about all who might have come to visit them. It could be a rich man with emeralds or a seafaring captain with gold, he dreams. But the chancellor isn't caught up in these same fantasies and refuses even to open a door or a window or even to peep through a lattice to see who might be waiting on the doorstep. And so finally, the king himself rushes to the door, throws it open, and finds only a beggar man with a single red stocking on his foot. But what seemed like a disappointment to my listening ears as a child was a delight to the king who welcomed that beggar in and promptly made him chancellor, throwing out proud Lord Willoughby. And Milne offers a little moral at the close of his poem, writing, Whatever fortune brings, don't be afraid of doing things. Our faith is not founded in fear. Neither the fear of being without God nor the fear of being sinful in God's presence for we might be beggars, but the king has rushed to welcome us in once and for all. We have a king who sees only possibility where others see none, greeting a beggar and seeing a chancellor from the moment the door was opened. 
There is no perpetual need to prove our station, and rather the opposite. Forgiveness is granted to all those who know they need it, and lift an open hand to knock at the door. This is the gift of grace. Whatever fortune brings, don't be afraid of doing things. Live confidently, for Christ's work is done. The forgiveness has been offered once and for all. The welcome has been extended. The door has been opened. And the love has been poured out for everyone and forever and ever. Thanks be to God.